0: Welcome to Musically Challenge, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Welcome to episode 39 of Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversation based on pretty much whatever topic we want. (laughs) (laughs) I'm your host, Lucifer Schwalbach, and along with me is Chad Knight. I come for your soul. Uh, It's that time of year again, the time where the nights are cool and the trees creak with the... The nights
1: are always cool. What (laughs) are you talking about?
0: All right, well, temperature-wise. Oh! Oh, go on. The nights are cool and the, the... Crisp night breezes make the trees look wicked in the cool, pale moonlight.
1: I threw you off because I didn't say anything. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, kind of, a little bit
0: there. As the specters and ghouls are out in force, the jack-o'-lanterns adorn most porches, and scary movies are played on pretty much all stations except for Hallmark and Lifetime almost non-stop. That's right, it's Halloween time. Halloween has two different origin stories depending on who you talk to. Most believe it's steeped in Celtic history and harvest festivals and pagan roots and that it was Christianized. Others believe that the Christians had their own holiday for the remembrance of the dead. Whichever side you fly your broomstick on, one thing's for certain. Halloween is a time for dark, macabre, and spooky shit to make its way to the forefront of everything. Candy is on sale wicked cheap, which I'm a fan of.
1: Yeah, I like free candy. I mean, cheap candy. <laughs> there
0: you go. Uh, we decided to honor Sawen by putting together a list of songs that should be on everybody's Halloween playlist. In their own right, they're good pieces of music, but this time of year, they're pretty much a necessity to play. So it's time to dim the lights, fire up the carved jack-o'-lanterns, and get this Halloween show started. Excellent. How you doing tonight, sir?
1: I'm doing fine. And like has kind of become a tradition for us, Right. we are going to start off this week by having some beer. All right, what you got? Okay, so... It's a Halloween episode, right? Right. So I went and I bought some scary beer.
0: Is it pumpkin related?
1: No, it is not pumpkin related. Okay. However, I am going to. I'm going to put this out there. I bought two 24 ounce cans.
0: Oh Jesus! For three dollars. I'm concerned now. <laughs> All right, here we go. You ready for this? All right.
1: All right, here we go. Now I've never had this particular brand of beer, but it's Hams beer.
0: Oh, I've seen this stuff, a lot of stuff. My dad actually used to have this stuff at the house all the time.
1: Okay, well, let's crack her open and see what we got here. See if it was worth my $3. Well, smell it. It smells like beer. It That's... smells like cheap-ass American beer. <laughs> all right. Yep, cheap-ass American beer. That's not bad. It's not horrible. No, it's it's got a little bit of a tang to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's born in the land of sky blue waters. I remember those commercials when I was a kid. Do you remember those? I
0: do actually. I remember those in the Olympia commercials.
1: Oh, see, I don't remember the Olympia ones, mm. but yeah, no, I mean this isn't horrible.
0: Yeah, I think the commercials... didn't they have a, a bear like a, a? Yeah, the Hams bear. That's right. That's right.
1: Yeah, and it would piss in the it would piss in the water.
0: That much I don't remember. But what are they making Budweiser?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm yeah sure. I'm not gonna go there. I was gonna say something very bad just in a second there so i'm
0: not going to all right well this is actually not a bad choice this is a no. good um, not too terrible i would i would drink this again yeah i will drink this again especially at that price mm-hmm. so trivia all right let's go ahead and we're going to we actually have two pieces of trivia today
1: oh it's a, it's a double down today
0: it's a twofer because they're both holiday related okay so, as in holiday related to halloween yes okay so the first question Which treat, created in 1898 by the Herman Golitz Confectionery Company of Fairfield, California, which is now known as the Jelly Belly Candy Company, is popular enough that nearly 35 million pounds of it are produced every year.
1: And since we're doing two, we're doing one at the beginning of the show, one at the end, so I'm answering now. Yes. Jelly beans. No. No. Candy corn. Really? Yeah. Candy corn. Yeah. Shit, I need to get this next one right because...
0: Now I'm at three and three. Exactly. This one I think you might actually get, though. Not that you wouldn't get the other one because it was candy-related, but... Right. All right. Eric Weiss, who died October 31st, 1926, was one of the world's most renowned escape artists. What was he better known as? Harry Houdini. That would be accurate. Yeah, that one I knew. See? I figured you'd be able to get that one. So that one we decided... This time we decided not to wait till the end of the episode for him because we had a two-shot. Right. But yes, yeah, so and you uh, you split them today.
1: Yeah, so I got um, four and three. You're four and three now. As long as I can ride over that five hundred, I'm going to be happy. There
0: you go. All right, why don't you start this one off today?
1: All right, so I'm going to start it off with with a song that was actually get, made famous not by the guy who we're talking about here today, but by a movie. And once I tell you what the song is, you'll know exactly what movie I'm talking about. I put a spell on you. Okay. So Hocus Pocus.
0: Good sung, movie.
1: Sung by the Sanderson Sisters. Well, actually, more specifically, Bette Midler.
0: Right, right, right. I Put
1: a Spell on You is a 1956 song written by Jay Hawkins, whose recording was selected as one of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. It was also ranked number 313 on Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. The track became a classic cult song covered by a variety of artists and was his greatest commercial success, reportedly surpassing a million copies in sales. Although it failed to make the billboard pop or R and B charts. Try to listen to this and not be cursed. I put a spell on you. Because of my had originally intended to record i put a spell on you as a refined love song or a blues ballad what yeah i know however the producer brought in ribs and chicken and got everybody drunk and we came out with this weird version i don't even remember making the record before i was just a normal blues singer i was just jay hawkins it all sort of just fell in place i found out i could do more destroying a song and screaming it to death Hawkins first recorded I Put a Spill on You as a Ballad during his stint with Grand Records in late 1955. However, that version was not released at the time. It has since been reissued on Hawkins' UK Rev Ola CD, The Whammy, 1953-55. The following year, Hawkins re-recorded the song for Columbia Oaken Records. The Notorious Screaming version, which was released in October 1956. This version was banned from radio for its outrageous style. A truncated version was released, but the band remained. The record still sold over a million copies. The hit brought Hawkins together with Cleveland disc jockey Alan Freed. Why? Do you know that name, Alan Freed? Sounds familiar. He is the guy who coined the term rock and roll.
0: Okay, or he's credited with, at least. Right,
1: right. Who promptly added him to his rock and roll review. Up to this time, Hawkins had been a blues performer, emotional but not wild. Freed suggested a gimmick to capitalize on the demented sound of I Put a Spell on You. Hawkins wore a long cape and appeared on stage by rising out of a coffin in the midst of smoke and fog. The act was a sensation, later bolstered by tusks worn in Hawkins' nose. On stage, snakes and fireworks and cigarette-smoking skull named Henry. The theatrical act was one of the first shock rock performances. And it was Alan Freed who also gave him the name Screaming Jay Hawkins. I don't know. This is just one of those classic songs and the way that Jay Hawkins does it, it's an amazing piece of early rock and roll. It's
0: almost Americana in music. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and you said shock rock. I mean, of course the first thing you think of when you hear shock rock is Alice Cooper probably. Well, that's what I think of. Yeah, and I right. think anybody and who has
1: the same musical backgrounds we do
0: would probably think about the same. Yeah. You know, and this is kind of the foref- forefront forefathers to it. Not as shocking as things are nowadays, but I mean, back then, I can only imagine what people were thinking.
1: Oh yeah, you mean you get somebody up on stage who literally screaming?
0: Oh yeah, the the guy's a creepy bastard. I've watched a video of this, and it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's actually kind of how he sounds too, and it's just yeah. like, no. But,
1: but definitely, definitely Halloween in its in its scope and, and oh yeah, you know absolutely what it covers. So, all right, what do you got for us? All right, we're gonna go ahead and
0: start off with Ghostbusters. <laughs> exactly. It's Ghostbusters, man. I mean, what else is there to say? Uh, Ray Parker Jr. was contracted to write and record the theme song for the 84 hit Comedy. Uh, Ghostbusters debuted at 68 on the Billboard Hot 100 and within two months hit number one spot where it stayed for three weeks. It was even nominated for an Oscar, actually, in 1985, but lost out to I Just Called to Say I Love You. Okay. I, I think it was well deserved then. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, Lindsey Buckingham of Fleetwood Mac, you know, the guy who did Holiday Road for vacation. Yep. <laughs> he claims he was approached to write the theme song, but due, due to his success with Holiday Road, but he declined it because he didn't want to be shoehorned as a soundtrack artist.
1: Okay, I get that understanding.
0: I mean... I I can understand it, too. It's a good thing, though, because the song I don't think would be the same without the smooth groove of the Parker Jr. voice. The smooth groove. Exactly. Now, Huey Huey Lewis got a little butthurt about it, claiming that the hook was the same for his song, I Want a New Drug. He sued. It was settled out of court. Don't care. Nobody really... I mean, everybody knows about it, but nobody gives a shit about that part. The song wasn't groundbreaking, by any means, but it was a cool movie tie-in. The music video, which featured Parker in it, as well as a ton of movie clips really was where it was at, though. It was directed by Ivan Reitman, the guy who directed the movie, and featured a ton of neon and funky atmosphere, and a lot of cameos, including Chevy Chase, John Candy, and Danny DeVito. Let's take a quick listen.
1: something strange in your neighborhood
0: Now, the song was so perfectly recognized that it was even used in the 1986 cartoon that was on Saturday mornings, The Real Ghostbusters, and the 2009 video game. Really? I know you've seen, I played that one for you, too. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And, I mean, it's just, it's amazing that it's such a recognizable thing that you can't have Ghostbusters without it. I don't think the fans would have it any other way.
1: No, I I would agree. I mean, it's one of those songs that it's part of the entire psyche of the entire franchise
0: it is and i mean it's it's a lexicon thing too i mean it's part of childhood for a lot of people too i mean i i saw ghostbusters in the theater way back in the day actually
1: i didn't because i thought it would be too scary
0: i got a little creepy when that the first ghost the librarian one. Oh yeah that was on the big screen uh, i was a little
1: concerned you know honestly of the entire movie if anything's gonna catch me off guard even though i know she's gonna like go all fucked up and ah
0: that's it. It still
1: catches you. hmm You know? So on this one, you know, he gives us a pop-inspired theme song for a movie about
0: ghosts. And, and ghost busting.
1: And go- well, I'm getting there. <laughs> Though Ghostbusters is not a scary movie, it is a perennial Halloween movie in my house now. As well as other times of the year. I- I'm not going to lie.
0: Oh, yeah. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> the song is a nice pop song about not being afraid of no ghost. I like it, mostly because of the movie and its attachment to it. Not sure how high this would be on my list of songs if it weren't part of the whole franchise, though.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it's something where if the movie had nothing to do with it, if it was just a random movie that came out or a random song that came out, it would fall kind of with all the rest of the pop songs. To me, it would become a novelty song almost. It would. It absolutely would. But being as how there's such a good memory with it and the movie came out and the movie was hilarious and everything else... It's, again, the tie-in for it just works out perfect.
1: Okay, so now the question that's on everybody's mind, and by everybody, I mean me. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the new one? Yes, I have. And what are your thoughts on that?
0: Hated it. You didn't like it? I did not enjoy it. I think they tried too hard. The characters were done okay. I think they tried to play stereotypes too much. And I will say this, having the original actors that came back to it, I think were very, I think, again, they. I think they tried too hard with it.
1: I, I can see where you're going with that. I actually really enjoyed the movie. I liked the new, the way, you know, because everybody coming out, they were saying, oh, it's going to be a handoff. It's going to be the old generation or the new generation. And they didn't do that.
0: No, no. It was kind of, it wasn't even a reboot. It was just kind of like a new version of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like,
0: um, kind of like are, the old Karate Kid and the new Karate Kid.
1: Yeah. To me, there was, the only thing I didn't like about the new one is there's too many parallels to the original. Okay. You know, they did a lot of the same stuff. Now, in the original one, they fought the Marshmallow Man. In the new one, they fought, I forget what the hell the name of it was, but it was just a big fucking thing they started on fire. Right, right. you know so it was just kind of the same thing. But overall, I did enjoy the movie.
0: Who are your characters that you liked?
1: I enjoyed, well, I don't know what her character, I can't think of the character name, but the uh, the blonde-haired one, the the really sassy one.
0: The one that was like the Egon ripoff? Yes. Holtzman. Ultimately. I enjoyed her a lot, although I liked um, what um, Thor, Chris Hemsworth's Helms character. Yes, I really enjoyed Kevin. I thought <laughs> he was, those two were the best. <laughs> I did not care for Kristen Wiig's character, Melissa McCarthy's character. I could have done without. See, I
1: kind of like her character, but only because it was so pivotal to the plot.
0: Yeah, and then the the Leslie Jones, I think. Um, yeah, the black girl didn't. I mean, I think she was kind of a walking stereotype. Yeah, and that was very much that so. was unfortunate. I mean I'm not upset that I watched it. I will say that. I am I, I okay enjoyed
1: I enjoyed the special effects oh, yeah. cuz they are so much better than the original movie, which is to be expected. It was it's I know it's it's you know 23 years later or whatever, but well, should we move on?
0: Yes, we shall cuz this isn't about movie reviews. <laughs> this is about music.
1: <laughs> no, we'll do movie reviews on on another podcast that you uh, guest on every once in a while.
0: Oh, there we go. All right.
1: There you go. So, my next song or my next Theme actually is the Nightmare on Elm Street theme. So, Charles Bernstein is a composer of film and television music. His credits include the score to A Nightmare on Elm Street. He's a Daytime Emmy Award winner. He has also been nominated for two Primetime Emmy Awards. Under the recommendation of his agent, Bernstein met with Wes Craven and was hired to score his film A Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984. On working with Craven, Wes was easy to work with. He gave me a lot of freedom, but we could discuss ideas and approaches. In many ways, he was an ideal director to communicate with because he listened well and was open to all ideas. Bernstein used an electric score since the film was low budget. Bernstein did not return to score the music for the other films in the franchise, though Ray Harlan briefly talked to him about scoring the fourth film. Let's stay awake and listen to... into much detail on this one i'm going to tell a story a quick story now i don't know if you remember when you first saw a nightmare on elm street i remember it with picture perfect clarity
0: (laughs) okay i
1: was young 10 11 years old probably too young to watch that kind of movie to begin with i would
0: probably say probably
1: but i was at a friend's house
0: that's always how it starts
1: isn't it and her family was big into horror flicks. Her family? Her family. Ooh, look at you. Yeah, I know. 10-year-old Casanova. That was <laughs> me. But so she like, she's like, we should watch this movie. And I'm like, no, I can't. It's rated R, you know, because that was a rule. Pussy. Hey, I know, but that was the rule, you know. You're not allowed to watch rated R movies. So anyway, we watched the movie. I am freaked out of my gourd. Just horribly scared and and you know just Just freaked out freaked out big time to the point where 10 or 11 year old me i start crying like bawling my eyes out good job casanova and she would not let me stop watching it oh nice she was brutal so anyway we finished this movie i'm crying i'm just i mean i had to look like You know, one of these people that have been crying for hours. Because, quite honestly, I was probably crying for an hour. This will
0: toughen you up, you little bitch.
1: Yeah, pretty much. So, that was my... You know, that was my first intake into horror flicks. That was the first horror movie I ever watched. Other than, like, you know, The Haunted Mansion by Disney or whatever. But...
0: Only, like, 30 years later, I guess, but...
1: Well, you know. So, you know, it was just crazy, but... So that, that that's, you know, and it scared me. And this song, still to this day, kind of makes the the shackles rise.
0: Okay, all right. So, what what about you? You know, and just the first thing about the music, you know, I really haven't seen many of the Nightmare movies. Only Bits and Pieces, the first one. Freddy versus Jason, honestly, was the first one that I remember seeing all the way through, which was goddamn hilarious, by the way. They got
1: funnier. They did. We've, I've seen them all.
0: Okay. Over I have the years. them all. I just have not seen all
1: of I've them. I've seen them all over the years. And from the first one which scared the socks off of me by the time they got to the fifth one you kind of watch it and chuckle
0: the same thing with the friday the 13th movies
1: oh was it i've never it like seen those
0: jason x was one of the first ones i saw which of course was what the 10th one i yeah. think and it was hilarious i'm sorry like in that one he jason takes a girl in a sleeping bag and thwacks her against a tree okay it, it was hilarious like I, a pinata
1: I, like trying to get her out kind
0: of or to just <laughs> throttler and inside of course probably somebody off screen you're hearing hollering like oh my god oh oh." i'm rolling on the ground laughing like an idiot i probably seemed insane (laughs) at the time but i rewound that and watched that like three four times that particular (laughs) scene because i'm just like that is ridiculously stupid now getting back with nightmare i think the first one i saw was number four or five or whatever i think my grandmother recorded it on showtime okay so I didn't see the first or second because we really didn't do horror movies in our house. you still not a big horror guy, are you? Uh, not really, no. Yeah. Um, action, comedy, family, everything else we we're perfectly okay with. But when it came to horror and scary type stuff, not really. So didn't even though it was kind of like in the 80s when you and I were kids, it really wasn't on the forefront. I think the most scary type stuff, and we already talked about this before, I think, was Freddy's Nightmares I remember watching on TV. Then they had the Friday the 13th series. But then they also had Tales from the Dark Side.
1: Oh, or Tales from the Crypt.
0: Uh, that was something different. But Tales okay. from the Dark Side was always on after wrestling on Friday nights. Oh, okay. And the theme song creeped me the fuck out. Like honestly, to the point where I even I'm like I've got goosebumps right now. I'm I can see your hair on
1: your arms is kind of rising just
0: thinking about that. Here, the show itself, I watched it recently, and it's not really creepy, but the music itself is just. Ha, ha, ha,
1: ha, ha. So, but what is your thought of the music for Nightmare on I
0: think it's done well. It's very electronic, as you had mentioned. Um, when I was listening to this, it sets the tone well enough. I think it could use modernization. Hmm. And I think if you, they had, if he went back and did it today, or another composer did something like maybe what they did for the new Nightmare, I think it would work out really well. But I mean, for the time and what it was, I think it was good. All right, perfect. So what do you got next? Next thing we're gonna go with a little bit more modern. We're gonna go with some Dracula. Okay. Now, this heavy shock rock song was written, or co-written, I should say, by Scott Humphrey and Robert Bartlett Cummings, better known as Rob Zombie, for the lead single off... I'd go by Rob Zombie, too. Hell yeah. For the lead single off a 1998 album, Hellbilly Deluxe. Much like most of what Rob Zombie does, it includes many different things that are horror or macabre related up to the, the song itself. Per Zombie, in an interview with Billboard magazine, the inspiration came from Grandpa Munster's Dragula, Dragula Dragster from the aptly named show The Munsters. The zombie loved the show for the comic characters. The music video shows him driving a car that's similar to but not quite the actual one that was used, intersped with band images and video clips of classic horror movies. Let's get your spook on and listen to a little bit of Dragula. song even used a soundbite clip from the horror hotel superstition fear and jealousy spoken by one of the masters of the horror genre christopher frickin lee nice at the very beginning of the song you know he's dedicated that's for damn sure and i pretty much have to say that most of the zombie stuff could easily be made into a halloween playlist most of his solo stuff including some of his white zombie stuff deals with devils or sideshows or dark topics so it's really not too hard to find a good zombie halloween song He not only loves horror music, but also horror films directing, many of them, including the Halloween reboot. I don't know. I just, I enjoy Zombies music. I think this is a really good one that could play if you want to get something that's a little bit heavier for your Halloween playlist. I think it works. So,
1: speaking of zombie movies, he did a movie called House of a Hundred Corpses or House of a Thousand Corpses. Right, right seven minutes is about what i made really yeah i tried to watch it because my brother my my little brother is big in the horror and that kind of stuff okay and he's like you gotta watch this one it's great so i went and rented it (laughs) and i think i made about seven and a half minutes
0: thanks a lot asshole you owe me the rental cost right so okay
1: first you don't get more halloween than rob zombie you just Mm -hmm. don't i mean i've always liked the stuff that he comes out comes out of his camp whether it's white zombie or his solo stuff or whatever Dracula is a great heavy song. I'm not sure if I'd call it heavy metal or hard rock, because it kind of could be either. kind of
0: toes the line on both genres.
1: But the basics is that this is a killer song. I love this song. Try not to get into this song.
0: Oh, yeah. In fact, it was really hard for me to choose because it was either this or Living Dead Girl. Yeah, that
1: would have been a good one, that too. That would have also been another Actually, really good one. Actually, I was a little upset with you when I got the list and you had already taken Dracula and I'm like... <laughs> but, you know, life goes on, so... Shall we move on?
0: I firmly agree that we should. So what do you got next?
1: All right. So up next, uh, we talked about him not too long ago. Feed My Frankenstein is a 1991 song by Alice Cooper on his 19th solo studio album, Hey Stupid, later released as a single in 1992. Its highest chart position was as, as a single was number 27 in the UK, which helped Hey Stupid to reach a UK number four chart position. The song was co-written with Mark Manning, whose band, Zodiac Mind Warp and The Love Reaction recorded the original version in their 1991 album Hoodlum Thunder. The song was featured in the 1992 film Wayne's World, mm-hmm. in which Cooper performs the song at a concert and was featured on the film's soundtrack. The line in the song, Fur Teacup, is a reference to the work by Merritt Oppenheim from the MoMA Collection. Guest appearances on the track include Joe Satriani, Stevie Vai, Nikki Sixx. And Elvira, or Cassandra Peterson, depending on how you know her. So listen to this, but don't feed Frankenstein. Alice Cooper is an American singer, songwriter, and actor whose career spans over five decades. With his distinctive raspy voice and the stage show that features guillotines, electric chairs, fake blood, deadly snakes, baby dolls, and dueling swords, Cooper is considered by music journalists and peers alike to be the godfather of shock rock. He has drawn equally from horror films, vaudeville, and garage rock to pioneer a macabre and theatrical brand of rock designed to shock people. I mean... Like we said, when you think Shock Rock, you think Alice Cooper. Now, have you ever seen Cooper in concert? I wish. I have had the honor. Nice. And he did the guillotine.
0: Were you terrified?
1: I wasn't terrified because I knew it was a trick. I knew okay, he's kind of an right. amateur uh, magician. Okay, sure. But it was amazing. to actually, I mean, because I don't know how he did it. His head went through the whole thing and comes down, head drops into the basket, and you're just like, I know it's a trick, but part of you is kind of like,
0: you know. That's the best part of good magic, though.
1: Yeah, yeah, is when you're like double guessing. You're like, shit, did he goof up this time? You know, did he just die and also was? I was me? at
0: the show where Alice Cooper actually died.
1: But it's amazing, and this song, "Feed My Frankenstein," I, everybody's heard it, especially in our age range.
0: If you've seen Wayne's World, you've seen, you've heard the song.
1: Well, even above and beyond that, it was one of those. It was right up there with, you know motley cruz dr Good" it played in that whole era that genre of all the same things okay but what are your thoughts what do you think of alice cooper and his uh his frankenstein
0: you know and you said a lot of pretty much what i was thinking about too again the godfather of shock rock he's i mean he's done it you know i mean he's got everything when it comes to the perfect stage show I wish I would have had a chance to see him. Doesn't he still perform? He he, does. He still puts out albums.
1: He does still perform.
0: Um, So maybe before too long, I can try to see him before everything shuts down. Well, if
1: that ever happens, let me know because I'm going with you.
0: Absolutely. Now, the song itself, I think it's a cool song. The first time I heard it was in Wayne's World. Okay. So, of course, watching him perform in Milwaukee, which was awesome because it was a shout out to Wisconsin. Right. And you know we're not worthy and all that other stuff the song is a very thinly veiled if at all about sex oh i mean duh yeah you know, this again there's nothing about it but it was sung in such a gritty dark style that coop just makes it all his own great song i enjoy it especially with the beginning part when it's just got the gurgling bubbles and everything else it's just right. like it's almost as good as some of the other songs that are going to show up on our list that have great intros
1: right and you know you, you say it's a, a thinly veiled thing about sex i don't know how veiled it is I mean, the line is actually, feed my Frankenstein, meet my libido, he's a psycho.
0: Well, that's why I said thinly, as in, like, if at all. (laughs) Fair enough. All right, what do you you got up? All right, well, we're going to go to probably one of the best Halloween songs ever. And I dare you to contest this.
1: Well, tell me what it is first. Thriller. Okay, I'm not going to contest
0: this. (laughs) The King of Pop gave us the King of Halloween songs, hands down. Um, This Rod temperton composed quincy jones produced song was the seventh single off of 1982's thriller album seventh single mm-hmm. holy shit dude for sure,
1: some... i think thriller probably had more singles than that because it was a damn good album
0: oh it was it's
1: actually in my i i i have the disc i mean you know it's one of those
0: okay all right now for some reason, Thriller wasn't released until two years after the release of the album, even though it was, on, it was the title of the damn album. No idea why that was the case, but I digress. This creepy disco funk song is everything you'd possibly want from a memorable Halloween party song. It's got a scary movie background setting and lyrics. It's got a great danceable beat, if you go for that kind of thing. But for the biggest part, comes down to two words. Vincent motherfucking Price. Hmm... Dude's got a golden voice for yes, more. Yes, sir. Between his voiceover in the midst of the song and the laugh at the end that still brings chills to this day, he nails the performance on this song. Now, if the if it wasn't good enough, they got John Landis, the director of Animal House, Blues Brothers and American Werewolf in London to direct the video, which was basically a mini movie.
1: Oh yeah, it was it was a good 35-40 minutes.
0: Let's let's get the uh, get the hackles up on your neck and listen to a little thriller. You're out of time.
1: So, I've got to ask you
0: in your clip, did you get the laugh? I don't remember. I edited this a while ago and I don't remember. <laughs> All right. If not, enough. maybe we'll just have to throw it in there randomly. Maybe we'll just, if there's something that we find funny, we'll just throw Vincent Price's laugh in there sometime and be like, you, you just imagine somebody listening to this going, what the fuck was that? Yeah. Yeah. So, getting back with you, the first thing I remember is when I hear the song, of course, is the laugh. And the choreography was amazing. The images were just creepy enough not to be scary for the younger fans. And as we mentioned, it was a mini-movie that was just under 14 minutes long. I remember when Thriller came out, I was a huge fan of Michael Jackson. You know, this, of course, was when there was a huge swing of people who hated him, saying he was gay, and people who liked him were gay, and blah, 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 you know. I didn't back down. I remained a fan. Maybe not so much of his character, but his older music, of sure. It's a shame we lost him when we did. And I'm sure there's plenty of other good music left in store. I mean, because look what he's put out in all of his catalog. I mean, some of this stuff was a little weaker, but well, it's still know, amazing. Well, you know, he
1: had the disco album.
0: Right. We like to forget about that. Now, on the plus side, if there is a plus side, his passing did allow Paul McCartney to get his Beatles stuff back, so I guess that's a good thing, right?
1: I guess, Is that yeah. too soon? No, I don't think so.
0: But getting back with Thriller, Thriller is one of my all-time favorite Michael Jackson songs. It is a longer song. It tells a great little story, He's still, when he had his, if you can call it a lower voice, because, you know, as his singing went on later on, he got more of the higher register, but like his older stuff like Beat It and everything else Mm -hmm. had more of that lower register to it. I dig it. This is one of my favorite all-time songs.
1: This is the classic Halloween song. I wrote that because it is. I I, I don't know if you can remember when this was released and it came out. It was this big thing around Halloween. It was either on ABC or CBS, Mm -hmm. and they showed the entire...
0: Mini movie. Yes. And then didn't they put something at the beginning like, I don't believe in the occult or whatever? Yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: So my parents actually have friends that threw a party to, for
0: this the thing. A thriller party.
1: A thriller party. Nice. So we went to do this and we went to watch this thing and I watched it and I didn't sleep very well for a few nights. Because you got to remember, this would have been night, like 1984.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which would
1: have made me about eight. eight years old
0: or so. Yeah. I was going to say around seven or eight years old, yeah. So...
1: But I love this song. Uh, Michael, at one of his most creative times in in writing music, and of course, like you said, Vincent Price as the narrator and the laugh machine. Amazing stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's really nothing else you can say about it.
1: No, I would agree. So let's go for you next. All right, up next is probably what I consider to be the creepiest piece of music we have. Okay. So, the X-Files theme. Okay. Okay is a 1996 instrumental recorded by American film and television composer Mark Snow. It is a remixed version of the original theme Snow composed for the science fiction television series, The X-Files, in 1993. Released in March 1996 in most countries, it achieved a huge success, particularly in France, where it reached number one on the singles chart. Really? The composition has since been covered by DJ Dotto and Mike Oldfield, among others. The song was also used as a background music for a sketch in the 1998 Elvin and the Chipmunks album, The A-Files, Alien Songs, where Elvin portrayed Agent Moldy and Brittany portrayed Agent Scuzzy. Nice. The truth is out there and the music is in here. <laughs>
0: Well played.
1: The X-Files typically used more instrumental music than most hour-long dramas. According to the Behind the Truth segment on the Season 1 DVD, Mark Snow created the echo effect on his famous X-Files theme song by accident. Snow said that he had gone through several revisions, but Chris Carter felt that something was not quite right. Carter walked out of the room and Snow put his hand and forearm on this keyboard in frustration. Snow said, the sound was in the keyboard. And that was it. So why I say this is the creepiest piece of music? Because when I, when this was originally on TV in the, in the mid 90s, like I said, not a big horror guy. Mm-hmm. I have since watched the series and it's not really horror. I mean, after the first season or so, the first couple seasons were like the monster of the week kind of thing. Sure, sure. But after that, you find out that there's this whole long, it's more of like, mentally you know it's like it gets into your head but it's not scary
0: it's more psychological
1: yeah absolutely so but the sound the music just that 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 sound the music just still to this day if it just like randomly pops up kind of get that tingle up your spine and kind of you you know you get that feeling like oh i'm being watched okay (laughs) because the truth is out there man
0: that's a song that i'm surprised we didn't actually put on here was this somebody's watching me by rockwell Oh, yeah, that could have worked. Oh, hey, maybe Halloween 2018. There you go. All right. Um, X-Files, I never watched the show. I remember it being on Fox because that was kind of one of their biggest draws. They're coming
1: out with season 11.
0: Well, yeah, because they rebooted it. Yep. And the nice thing is is they got the original people to do it instead of just like kind of X-Files Extreme or some crap right, like yep. MacGyver rebooted. Yeah, it's it was all over everywhere, so I knew the theme. Uh, never watched the show. It's kind of like Lost. Everybody talked about how great it was and how the ending was terrible.
1: Yeah, I haven't, I haven't wasted my time on lost because I, heard, I, I learned what the ending was and I'm like, fuck it, I ain't doing it.
0: But I mean, you know what I'm saying though. It's just yeah. like one of it's like, ah, ah oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, it is a creepy piece of music. I will give you that. I'm not sure if it was something that makes the hackles rise, but it's definitely one that kind of makes you look around a little bit and watch over your shoulder.
1: All right, so what do you got next?
0: Next, we're gonna go with a little bit of something that's not quite really as scary, but it's dealing with the devil, and that's gonna be the Devil Went Down to Georgia.
1: Well, there you go, Charlie Daniels.
0: Exactly. Now, Charlie Daniels' band gave us this song in May of 1979. It's the story of Johnny, a normal guy minding his own business, playing the fiddle, being encountered and challenged by old Scratch himself to a fiddle-off. Is that even a thing, a fiddle-off? I I wouldn't see why not. All right. the The narrative of the song is more spoken than sung until the outside narration comes in, if that makes any sense. Anyhow, Johnny agrees, but warns the devil he's about to get his ass kicked. It's got layers, man. It's got layers. Yeah, there you go. The prideful devil ignores it and starts playing anyways. Johnny plays and, of course, wins the confrontation and tells the devil to come on back if you ever want to try again. Let's take a quick listen. The boy said, my name's Johnny, and it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet you're going to regret because I'm the best as ever been. Johnny Rossin' up your bow and play your fiddle hard. Cause hell's broke loose in Georgia and the devil deals at cards. And if you win, you get this shiny fiddle made of gold. But if you lose, the devil gets your soul. Now there's a lesser known sequel that came out in 1993 called The Devil Came Back to Georgia. Yeah, which, as you guessed, the Devil comes back to challenge Johnny in a rematch. The song is about making a deal and gambling with the Devil. How can you get more Halloween than that? True. Yeah, Daniels did a great job with differing tones throughout the song. The Devil's part almost sounds wicked, and the good guy, finger quotes, Johnny's piece sounds more upbeat and maybe almost happy, if that sounds like it. Devil and down George is a great crossover hit that could fit country or rock, and I'm glad to hear it on either one of those stations. I enjoy Charlie Daniels' stuff. I think this is just a great song. I I have to agree. So Charlie Daniels and the band
1: have a little song about a fiddle match between Johnny and the devil. And Lou already told you the story. So in the end, the devil has moved on along down the road because, I mean, he's the devil. You're not going to kill him. And Johnny, he's got a nice uh, fiddle made of pure gold. So I wanted to go more into I've actually met Charlie Daniels. it was it was was really kind of cool he signed a a headshot for me it was really kind of neat he's a really nice
0: guy you know a lot of them that you don't hear about usually are so it's the ones that you hear about who are pricks
1: yeah but this song love this song it's just it's it's a song about morals about knowing where your moral compass is Mm -hmm. you know and there's not a whole lot more to say about it than what you already put out there and
0: and I'm just I'm sorry. When I think of this, I also think of uh, what was it? The Water Boy, I think. Remember when Mama's making dinners and the song's playing? Yes. Because everything was the devil. Yeah, yeah. So the devil. Exactly. What do you got next? All right, up next
1: we're going to go with a true like Halloween song. So Monster Mash is a 1962 novelty song and the best known song by Bobby Boris Pickett. The song was released as a single on Gary S. Paxton's Gar Pax Records label in August 1962, along with full-length LP called The Original Monster Mash, which contained several other monster-themed tunes. The Monster Mash single was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart on October 20th to 27th of that year, just before Halloween.
0: It couldn't even pull off the Halloween.
1: (laughs) It has been a perennial holiday favorite ever since. Join with Dracula and tap your foot along. I was
0: looking in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly to my surprise he did the, match. He did the, monster, match. the monster match it was a graveyard smash he did the it got on in a flash. he did the
1: mess he did the monster match. so Pickett was an aspiring actor who sang with a band called the cordials at night while going to auditions during the day. One night while performing with his bands, Pickett did a monologue in imitation of horror movie actor Boris Karloff while performing The Diamonds' Little Darlin'." The audience loved it, and fellow band member Lenny Kepzizi encouraged Pickett to do more with the Karloff imitation. Pickett and Kepzizi composed Monster Mash and recorded it with Gary S. Paxton. Pianist Leon Russell, Johnny McRae, Ricky Page, and Terry Berg credited as... The Crypt Kickers. The song was partially inspired by Paxton's early novelty hit, "Ali Oop, as well as the mashed potato dance craze of the era. A variation on the mashed potato was danced to Monster Mash, in which the footwork was the same, but Frankenstein-style monster gestures were made with the arms and the hands. The song is narrated by a mad scientist whose monster, late one evening, rises from his slab to perform a new dance. The dance becomes the hit of the land. When the scientist throws a party for other monsters. The producer came up with several low-budget but effective sound effects for the recording. For example, the sound of a coffin opening was imitated by a rusty nail being pulled out of a board. The sound of a cauldron bubbling was actually water being bubbled through a straw. And the chains rattling were simply chains being dropped on a tile floor. Oh, no way! Yeah! In addition to narrating the song in a Karloff voice... Pickett also impersonated fellow horror film actor Bella Lugosi as Count Dracula with the line, Whatever Happened to My Transylvania Twist. All right. I absolutely love this song. This is one of those Halloween songs that I've heard since I was very little. It's a lot of fun.
0: It can, and it's, it can be played on kids' playlists or on adults' playlists. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And it's, it's a very family-friendly song. You know, and I think even most people our age know what the mashed potato is as far as a dance move. Don't
0: know how to do it, but I've heard of it. Right.
1: Well, you don't dance.
0: Case You're not point. a smooth motherfucker like me. As he's fondling himself. Don't say that and look at me like that. That's just disturbing, man. Hey,
1: it's Halloween. I get all kind of aroused. Creepy. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, great song, great novelty song. Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot more to say about it. For me, from my point of view,
0: what do you got? There's really not. In fact, actually, if you even look at my notes, it just says classic novelty song. Not much else to say about it. Moving on. <laughs> Works for me. All right. So next one we got here, and that's a little Hotel California okay. by the Eagles.
1: I am going to stop you right now. I am going to place a challenge to you. I wrote one sentence. Convince me that this is a Halloween song in any way.
0: All right. Well, here's to open. Glenn Frey and the Dons, Felder and Henley, collaborated on this 1977 song off the album of the same name. This six-and-a-half-minute song tells a story and is all symbolic-like. And you know how I feel about symbols. You don't like them. No, not too much. But anyways, what they're really—what ta- are they really talking about? Who can really say? And here's why I say this: the Eagles together describe the song as an interpretation of the high life of Los Angeles, and on a separate date, Don Henley mentions it's the song about a journey from innocence to experience. Nothing else. Not really cut and dried because they can't make up their goddamn minds what they're actually talking about. I'm not really sure how much credit to put in it, considering that through the years, Henley himself has even changed his explanation. So it's really truly anybody's guess. That may be what the band says, but many people, including myself, really think the song is dealing with death, the afterlife, and devils. Let's take a quick listen, and then I'll continue on.
1: Devils? Mm Mm-hmm. I read the lyrics. I didn't see anything about devils.
0: The mark of the beast is the devil, correct? Could be. Right. They stab it with their steely knives, but they just can't kill the beast? Yes. Now, the narrator sees shimmering lights going towards the lights, a common sense when someone dies, and is stopped. He isn't sure if he looked what looked like a hotel that could be heaven or hell. The song also mentioned there's plenty of room at Hotel California. Any time of year, you can find it here. Heaven or hell doesn't go anywhere, and they're always accepting new souls. The biggest thing I see about it is you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. As in, once you're dead in heaven or hell, you ain't going back. Now, I'm not the only one who thinks this way. You know, it's, it could be interpreted any number of ways. This is the way that I interpret it. You may disagree, but there are plenty of allusions to death and afterlife. It's one of the Eagles' greatest hits, and while not an upbeat song by any means, it has great songwriting, amazing guitar work, especially during the end by the solos done by Joe Walsh and Don Felder. I like the Eagles' rock stuff. I can take or leave their country stuff, as I think they tried too hard. And this is one of my favorite songs. Now, a neat little factoid, the reason that Steely Knives was added in there, was a poke at Steely Dan, who pointed at the Eagles in their song, Everything You Did, with the line, Turn up the Eagles, the neighbors are listening. Again, this is how I see this. I read the song. I read the lyrics. This is my interpretation. Is it right or wrong? No one can really say because that's my opinion.
1: And the Eagles don't even
0: fucking know. Exactly.
1: But actually, it's kind of funny because my wife pointed to the same things. Because when I was doing this, I said to her, I said, how the fuck can he say this is a Halloween song? And she went to a lot of the same points you did. Okay. Now, I might be willing to concede that it's a song about the afterworld and death and that kind of stuff. Which I suppose, in a way, kind of makes it a Halloween song. Okay. But I'm still hard-pressed to think that this needs to be on a Halloween playlist.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Again, just my opinion. Hey, that's perfectly fine. That's why we're both entitled to our opinions. All right. I got nothing else on it, though. All right, cool. Why don't you lead us off with our next one, then? All right. So, up next is kind of a parody to a...
1: not a parody song? So, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince did a song called A Nightmare on My Street. It is the third single from their second studio album, He's the DJ, I'm the Rapper. Is that supposed
0: to be clever? I, I think it's supposed to be. Oh, well, maybe in the 80s it was.
1: Possibly. The song was released as a single in early 1988. The single was released on vinyl and audio cassette tape. Awesome. Yes, vinyl and audio cassette tape. The song was considered for inclusion in the movie A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. But the producers of the film decided against its inclusion. Thank you, producers.
0: Because it would have been too lighthearted for the scary movie.
1: Yeah. So New Line Cinema, copyright holders of the A Nightmare on Elm Street film f- franchise, sued DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince's record label for copyright infringement, forcing the label to destroy a music video produced for the song. Both sides eventually settled out of court. But as a result, vinyl pressings of the album... He's the DJ, I'm the rapper, Contain a disclaimer sticker that says, This song is not part of the soundtrack and is not authorized, licensed, or affiliated with the Nightmare on Elm Street films.
0: So, yeah.
1: The song samples Charles Bernstein's music motif of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Let's have a quick listen.
0: He comes to me a night after I call
1: him to bed. He's burnt up like a weenie and his
0: name is Fred. He wears the same hat and sweater every single day. And even if it's right outside shows up when I'm asleep. I can't believe that there's a nightmare on my
1: street. So Will Smith starts the song off by telling a little story about Freddy Krueger, whom he addresses as Fred, Fred, and then begins to recall his encounter with him. The story starts off on a Saturday evening when Smith, Jazzy Jeff, and Reddy Rock C go on a triple date with three girls where they catch a movie. After Smith gets home, he lies down for the night and supposedly wakes up sometime after 1230 from the unusually hot temperature from the heater, which has melted his alarm clock. He goes downstairs for something to drink, and as he gets downstairs, he notices the TV still on, which he finds strange as he is home alone. He turns off the television, then he hears a voice from behind him, and without looking to see who it is, he runs out of the house. He gets a half a block before he stops and comes to the realization that what he's experiencing is nothing more than a dream. So he returns home, where Freddy grabs him and offers a homicidal team-up. But Will turns down the offer, and Freddy slashes Smith's chest. Smith, fearful for his life, runs up to his room and hides in his bed under his sheets. That's going to work.
0: Oh, it works in all the other horror movies.
1: Right, so then Freddy then hops on the bed on top of Smith and starts slashing away with Smith trying to fight back. But everything stops and the sound of Smith's alarm clock. Smith looks to see that no one is there and scoffs at what he has happened, assuming it was all just a bad nightmare. But when he sees rips in his sheets, he realizes what has happened and quickly calls Jeff to warn him. As the song ends, Smith warns Jeff to stay awake, and Jeff suddenly starts screaming, with Freddie laughing in the phone's background, telling Smith, I'm your DJ now, Princey! it's just awful this whole song is awful it is but it's one of those songs and and will smith if i ever meet you i have to ask you about this song because fuck dude really but anyway it's a horrible song it is it's humorous in the fact that it makes fun of a nightmare on elm street sorta
0: it it definitely makes light of it yeah yeah
1: but other than that there's not a whole lot to say for it other than you know it's halloween it's related to a nightmare on elm
0: street it's got the little the little hook from the actual theme yep. to that, I noticed. <laughs> okay, here was my thought on this one here. Much like most of the Fresh Prince's other earlier stuff, the song tells a story, but this time it's Nightmare on Elm Street. Apparently, Will lived on and knew Freddy Krueger. Damn. Now, riddle me this, though. It's okay that he lives near and knows a serial killer and murderer, but if he gets in a little fight, that's when his mom got scared and sent into to Bel Air. Seriously, think about yeah. that. Oh, no, I get you. I hear you. So that's that was my first thought. I'm like, the fuck is the matter with you, Ma? But anyhow, no, it's it's a goofy song. Um, not great by any means. No. Not one of the worst ones I've heard. I don't know. I guess I can see this as kind of a, a lighthearted, fun song to be put on a Halloween list. Yeah. All right, so what do you got next? Now, we're going to go a little, bit th- a little bit more theme music now. We're okay. going to do the Halloween theme by John Carpenter. I did not know that he actually not only directed the movie, but he also wrote the music. I did not know that either. Yeah, the theme is for the movie Halloween. Do I really need to explain anymore? I mean, it's fucking Halloween. Seriously,
1: you don't need to explain more, but, but you're going to.
0: Carpenter did all the, did everything for this movie in 1978. He directed it, he wrote it, and he performed the score. Um, that definitely doesn't happen very often, and performing it even too, so he's just triple threat there. Yeah. That's just a bigger paycheck. That, that is right. Just like anybody who puts her name as producer Yeah, yeah. or executive producer. So just a bit of an overview for those five people out there who haven't seen or heard of the movie. It's Halloween night in 1963. Little Michael Myers murders his sister with a butcher knife. He's committed to Smith's Grove Sanitarium. But the night before Halloween in 1978, he escapes and heads home to start killing again. Let's listen to some music that plays when Michael Myers is coming. One of the fir- it's one of the few horror movies that relies more on the psychological versus the bloody messes, and one of the first to feature the concept of the main killer dying and coming back to life in the same goddamn movie. Of course, the killer never truly dies, because otherwise we wouldn't have a billion and a half frickin' sequels, like Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th. Now, for a spine-tingly movie, you have to have an equally chilling theme song, and Carpenter did just that. The theme is really, really pretty basic if you think about it and you listen to it. However, it's perfect because it's relentless, it's terrifying, which is perfect because the killer that stalks his prey is also relentless and terrifying. It can get a bit bit repetitive, but you never really truly rest or can avoid looking over your shoulder when that's playing. Especially with the lights down low, it's just kind of like, what's going on?
1: Yeah, oh yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Now, a little interesting thing about this was that the soundtrack came out in Japan about the same time as the movie came out in 1978, but it wasn't released in the U.S., until 1983. The soundtrack or the, the movie? The soundtrack didn't come out five years after the movie came out in the U.S.
1: Huh, I wonder what was holding that up.
0: I, I don't know, but it's kind of ridiculous. And, you know, that's just money out of Carpenter's pocket, damn it. Yeah, yeah. So, classic
1: horror movie music. I've never watched the Halloween movie franchise, so I really don't have much to say about that. However, I thought the crying in the beginning of the music. Uh, In the background was a nice touch, along with the heavy breathing, as if Michael Myers is right there behind you, breathing
0: through his hockey mask. He didn't have a hockey mask.
1: Who had the hockey mask? That was Jason. Oh, fuck. Michael,
0: Michael Myers was the dude that had the William Shatner mask that was all painted white.
1: Okay. See, I've never seen it, and that just proves it. But anyway, but it sounded like he was breathing in a mask. Very creepy. A lot of high piano and synthesizer in the background along with, the, you know, a very creepy vibe as far as Halloween music goes.
0: Awesome. Yeah, it is, good. It is a good theme. I would recommend this one. This is definitely one that will kind of get your, get your adrenaline pumping a little bit. Yeah, this is a
1: great one to have in the background at a, at a party or something like that. Yeah, I think so.
0: All right, so what do you got next?
1: All right, my last one for this episode is Werewolves of London by Warren Zavon. So, it's a rock song composed by uh, Leroy Menorell, Waddy Watchell, and Warren Zivon, and performed by Zivon. <laughs> Included on Zivon's 1978 album, Excitable Boy, it featured accompanied by drummer Mick Fleetwood and the bassist John McVie of Fleetwood Mac. The single was released by Asylum Records as catalog number 45472. It entered the American Top 40 charts on April 22, 1978, reaching number 21, and remained in the Top 40 for six weeks. In New Zealand, the song reached number 15, and according to Watchell, Werewolves of London was the hardest song to get down in the studio I've ever worked on. However, Watchell laid down his solo in one take before he'd even had a chance to partake of the bump of Coke and drink he'd placed in front of him. According to Jackson Brown, who was the producer for the recording, Werewolves of London, along with Excitable Boy, were written while work was being done on the album that preceded Excitable Boy, but were not included on that album in favor of other songs. Let's see if you can survive Werewolves of London. He was looking for the place called Lee Ho Fooks. Gonna get a big dish of beef Warren William Zavon was an American rock singer, songwriter, and musician. Zavon's compositions include Werewolves of London, Lawyers, Guns, and Money, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner, and Johnny Strikes Up the Band, all of which are featured on his third album, Excitable Boy. He also wrote major hits that were recorded by other artists, including Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me, Accidentally Like a Martyr, Mohammed's Radio, Carmelita, and Hasten Down the Wind, Along with his own compositions, Zavon recorded or performed occasional covers, including Alan Toussaint's A Certain Girl, Bob Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door, who hasn't covered that fucking song? Pretty much. And Leonard Cohen's First We Take Manhattan. He was a guest several times on Late Night with David Letterman and The Late Show with David Letterman. Letterman performed guest vocals on Hit Somebody, the hockey song, with Paul Schaefer and members of the CBS Orchestra... On Zavon's album, My Ride's Here. Okay, so Werewolves of London.
0: You mentioned all those other songs that he's done. That's about the only one I know of his.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know a little bit more of Zavon because I actually enjoy his stuff. Okay. But when I first heard Werewolves of London, again, I was young. Mm -hmm. I've always been one of these guys that fall asleep to music. Sure, okay. So I always had basically two alarm clocks one that played music all the time and then one that was actually set with an alarm okay and i woke up in the middle of the night and werewolves of london is playing and it's a little creepy in the middle of the night you know when you're a kid and, and it's not a creepy song per se <laughs> but it was just one of those songs where you're just kind of like what "The uh, you know? uh, but anyway i really enjoy the song it's it's a fun little song about werewolves in you know different parts of London, and they talk about Lon Chaney and Lon Chaney Jr., who played werewolves, you know,
0: right, in the right. classic
1: horror films and that <laughs> kind of stuff. And they talk about the Queen, and you know how the werewolves are they're these sharp dressed guys, and it's it, just a fun his song. His hair
0: was perfect,
1: exactly. But you know, it's just it's just one of those fun songs where you're like, it's a little different, but it's not crazy over the top
0: different, right? It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'll be the first to admit that. I mean, it's just a guy talking about werewolves really about mm-hmm. different things that are going on having a bowl of beef chow mein yeah. and his hair being perfect as i mentioned before and it um, drops
1: names of different restaurants in in mm-hmm.
0: uh, like in soho i think was mentioned Yeah, they in talk too. about
1: soho and different parts of london
0: it's a great song it's it doesn't have to make sense to be a good song and it's just entertaining like i said it's one of the greatest hits for me of his i think yeah but it's still just an entertaining song
1: All right, so we're at that point. Why don't you wrap us up, man?
0: All right, we're going to go with a little Don't Fear the Reaper by B.O.C. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Donald Buck Dharma Roser wrote and sung this classic Blue Oyster Cult song. The song's about how death is going to happen eventually, and there's really not a reason to fear it. Pretty straightforward. Dharma himself said it's basically a love song where love transcends the actual physical existence of the partners. That's pretty deep, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And he used the Romeo and Juliet line to prove that love everlasting and how, as the song states, will be together in eternity in the afterlife. Some people thought of it and considered the song to be about martyr suicides. And Dharma was pretty appalled. And he just wanted to set the record straight and be like, no, that's not correct. We're going to go into this a little bit more, but let's just take a little bit of a listen quick.
1: Seasons don't fear the reaper, nor do win the wind, the the
0: Don't Fear the Reaper features a very unusual instrument in it. You know what instrument that is?
1: I don't, but I know what sound you're talking about.
0: The cowbell.
1: Oh, that's not even the one I was thinking of. But anyway.
0: Bassist Joe Bouchard remembered producer David Lucas requesting that drummer Albert Bouchard play it. Albert thought he was crazy, but he put all this tape around it and played it. It really pulled the track together. Lucas, on the other hand, said that he played it, which was supported by guitarist Eric Bloom. So no one really knows who the hell played the damn things, but who really cares? Halloween-wise, the song is about life, death, and eternal love, so how can you not have this be part of your playlist? You know, it's a great hit from a great classic rock band. A couple interesting tidbits. The first everyone knows and can be summed up with two words, more cowbell.
1: Yep, the Saturday Night Live skit.
0: Yep, Will Ferrell, Christopher Walken skit immortalized the song in 2000 between the -the over-the-top performances of Ferrell and Walken and the breaking of character by most of the cast. It was perfect. I don't know anybody who has seen the sketch who doesn't have it spring to mind whenever the song comes on, period. I mean, it's just how it is. Now, apparently, Buck Dharma apparently loved it so much that he said that he never tires of it.
1: Wow, really?
0: Yeah, that's kind of surprising. The other tidbit is that Stephen King cites this song as the inspiration for the book The Stand.
1: It was It was uh, in the movie quite a bit, actually.
0: Yep, and actually it even says that he quoted the song at the very beginning of the of the book.
1: Yep. So... Neat. Yeah, I put this hits a lot of things you can check off the list. Great classic rock song. Yep. Classic Halloween dance music, and really creepy if you listen to it. If you really listen to the lyrics, it can be
0: creepy. You know, and especially when it goes into the... Like, when it goes into kind of that little slowdown section, Mm -hmm. that almost sounds like Friday the 13th type music, even.
1: Yeah, this song talks about a lot of things, but... They put a number of people who die each and every day at 40,000. I assume that since this was written in 1976, that number is higher today. Because of inflation. (laughs) Well, no, because there's just more people. Right. So, uh, you know, and I had put in there the thing about Stephen King movie, The Stand, which is creepy and Halloween-ish in its own right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, great song. Love that song. I'm not a huge Blue Oyster Cult fan, but that song, I love that song. Absolutely. Okay, listen up, everybody. Turn up your volumes. Announcement. All right, so if you guys want to let us know what you think of this episode or any other episode, there's several ways you can do that. First of all, you can send us an email at uh, musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com. Drop us a line. We'll get back to you. Otherwise, if you're more the social media thing, you can find us on Facebook at POI Network or at Musical.ly Challenge Podcast. Either way, again, reach out to us. We'll get back to you. And we have something relatively new. I'm not going to say it's brand new anymore because we've been saying this for a few weeks.
0: But, Lou, why don't you tell them about the tweeters? Yeah, if you want to be one of those tweeter-type people and, you know, don't feel like listening to Trump all the time and would like to listen to something that's good for a change, you can get in touch with us at MCpodcast17. Uh, MC for Musical Challenge, podcast, and then the number 17. Go ahead and send us information the same way that you'd want to send us an email or boost us or whatever else. Totally up to you. Yeah, so drop us a line. Tell us we're doing well. Tell us
1: we're doing bad. Send us a playlist. I was going to get to that. Send us a playlist, 14 songs, 14 different artists, and we'll put together your very own episode for you. And with that, I want to say thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. And keep it scary.